Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I cover a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. It's good to be back after a short break, fresh in 2019. Um, sorry about the lack of episodes towards the end of the year. I had intended to get um, one or two out in December and a bon- uh, another bonus episode as well. But um, yeah, moving house, not having the internet for a bit, family coming to visit. There just wasn't time. But anyway, now I'm back and uh, I'm hoping to... Uh, have a few episodes coming soon so uh, yeah it should be good. This episode is about Clans of the Alphane Moon. It's a Philip K. Dick novel so this is me returning to my mini-series if you like um, trying to, to work my way through every Philip K. Dick novel. For people new to the podcast I'm doing these solo as, as opposed to the normal interview format so it's just gonna be me here uh, talking through this book. So I've talked before about themes or motifs that repeat throughout Philip K. Dick's career. Um, some of these things are here, uh, but I think this this repetition or, or remixing of ideas can also happen in phases where things kind of cycle in or out or kind of reappear for a while. Uh, even names. So there's a character here called Baines, you might remember from the episode I did on Man in the High, Man in the High Castle. Also had a character called Baines. Um, both have some kind of uh, Nazi association. If it's very tenuous, not particularly strong in this novel, but um, still. Um, but the recent books I did, Martian Time Slip, um, The Simulacra, both both uh, discussed mental health and anti psychiatry, and that's those things are here very strongly in this novel. Um, Simulacra, obviously, in this Simulacra. Uh, the, the the android if you prefer that's here again so this is something of a thematic trilogy we're dealing with here in um martian time that time slip simulacra and uh and this novel so so the next one we move on to which will be either three stigmata of palmer eldritch or dr blood money will be moving on to kind of new uh, new territory. Those those kind of themes that he's dealing with here uh, kind of cycle out, and he moves on to some some new stuff. So uh, this will be the the last of of the, that kind of thematic trilogy, I guess. So this book was published in 1964. It was also written that year. I will say uh, in that year, Philip K. Dick also wrote the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, the Zap Gun, the Penultimate Truth. DSRA, although that was written with Roger Zelazny, and The Unteleported Man, although I don't think that was finished. I think that was unfinished. I think it was later finished by somebody else and published as Lies Inc. after his death. Um, the year before, he wrote Dr. Blood Money, or How We Get Along After the Bomb, The Game Players of Titan, uh, The Simulacra, and The Crack in Space. So, I've mentioned his insane productivity before and that gives you a very kind of clear picture of just how ridiculously quickly he's he was producing books um and that accounts for this this remix of ideas and um the occasional messiness that I've talked about before which I think is a part of, of Philip K Dick's novel's uh quality there are examples in this uh, Joan I don't know how you're supposed to say her name Joan Trist Joan Trieste something like that uh, who appears in this book she is someone with psi abilities so her her ability is that she can the the implication is that there's people with different abilities and they they emerge you never know exactly what their abilities would be her ability is that she can make time flow backwards in a limited area she says roughly 12 by 9 up to a period of five minutes Again, this this idea of uh, going backwards or, or playing with time reappears in Ubik and Counterclock World. Um, but anyway, this uh, feels like it will be important when it first appears, or that, or certainly that the character will be important, her power perhaps, but um, it's not. Um, so she's a character that kind of cycles out quite quickly. 
it, that, that happens a lot in this, this book. He kind of cycles in characters which seem to be important and then just, just moves on from them. But she's what she does with her power is she's rushed to bad traffic accidents and to try and um, you know save people um, or at least bring them back to a state where they can be treated before they died. And she's on really bad pay and her conditions are really bad. She's on call 24 hours a day. And uh, I very much like that way that something extraordinary, like these in, these incredible powers are in, incorporated into uh, the mundanity of, of capital. I think it's a very Dickian move. And I think that's a good example of, of what I talk about with the, the messiness sometimes lending something to 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 the books without this this thing that feels like it's going to be very special and is incredible that this this person can do that, um, which in another book would you could that or in another piece of media that wouldn't you know that would have to be like a the thing like the superhero novel the, the, these powers are what make these people what makes the stories but here it's just kind of like an incidental thing that disappears and as I say becomes something very boring because capital just kind of incorporates it into its own system and makes it into something very tedious and boring and unimportant so um yeah the the kind of incidental nature of it in that book uh is a good way of representing that so that's that's a good example of how his messiness intentionally or not can uh have an effect i think so anyway, the, the reason I brought up this uh, this period of, of insane productivity and gave you those examples of, of how many books he was writing is I don't, I think it's interesting and not insignificant that a guy who's very interested, um, as I think Frederick Jameson said, in technologies of production and reproduction is producing these these books at an insane rate. Like kind of reeling them off a off a production line, uh, and and almost like reproducing the same, not the same novels, but as I said, this recycling ideas. He's he's reproducing um, themes like all the time, and if you read, you can read his writings as being about the horrors of late capitalism in some way, and I think this way of producing them gives them something like they have this sense of, of breaking apart like they're, they're they're so they've been produced so quickly and so uh, he's so on the edge and churning them out that they're all, they're barely holding it together and uh i think that lends them something that you know he wanted to think of himself as an artist and he wanted to deal with philosophical implications but he's being I mean, he was in poverty for most of his life. Um, so he's been kind of forced to churn out these commodities at this insane rate. So I think in some way, the, the kind of method of their production or the way in which they produce flat reflects back on the system in which they're being produced in in the way that the capitalism was kind of commodifies his what he's trying to do. If, if you see what I mean, I hope that makes sense. So that this kind of... Um, quality of breaking apart or things breaking through that they they have because of the way he's the, the speed at which he's being forced to produce them um, in some way reflects back on on the, the process or the system in which they're being made i think there's something interesting about that um i found that quite hard to articulate what i mean there but hopefully you you understand uh, what, what i'm trying to get at Anyway, on to the story of this book. So the Alphane moon that the title refers to is um, a moon in space, and it's the site of a former mental hospital. It is an Alphane moon because it was, I believe, previously um, uh, owned by the Alphanes, who are an alien race of um, kind of like insects, like sentient and uh, intelligent. But um, anyway, the humans or terrans i think if i do were at war with them and they they took this moon during the war made it to a mental hospital um i think it was it's basically for people who couldn't deal with like the pressures of colonization uh like space colonization and ended up uh, ended up there and um anyway the the wars that way over um but um, because the the moon there was like a, a rev- kind of revolution on the uh moon and the the mental patients um took over basically the earth lost contact with um with the moon and also because the the terms of the war being over the treaty or whatever the alphans have to leave it so it's kind of been um uh, left on its own for uh, the people who 
the mental patients who um, who took over there and, and organised a, a new society. And um, Earth wants it back, basically. And the idea is to send a psychologist to the moon to see what's going on there, evaluate the the patients there in the guise of a kind of humanitarian project. That's how they kind of frame it to her, but it's pretty clear, and I think even to her, uh, really, that they have other motives. Um, they basically want, I think, her to declare that they need, like, um, treatment to to justify, like, Earth coming in and taking it back or whatever, but anyway. So the clans that it refers to, clans of the Alpha Moon, so these are groups of people who have divided uh, into different um, settlements along the lines of their mental health problems and each one kind of performs a social function um i would just say before i describe these these are uh, the way that philip k dick uh, or even the, the terms that used here and the way that philip k dick represents these mental health problems are certainly out of date and they're definitely badly represented um, so just but the, the terms I'm using here I'm just using the terms of the novel to explain to you how they're represented in the book so yeah so there's the clans um, there is a council which is kind of the, the ruling body of the of the uh, moon and there's a representative from each clan at the council so we have the pairs or um, which is short for paranoids and they're represented by Gabrielle Baines and they live in the settlement of Adolfville. All the settlements tend to refer to like Adolf, so obviously meant to refer to Hitler, the idea being he's kind of, for Philip K. Dick, a kind of embodiment of paranoia, and each one has a like a famous person in the name of their settlement who represents that um, mental health problem. But they're kind of the, the statesman class. They're kind of constant uh, planning and worrying about the, the machinations of other um, factions and so on makes it a kind of statesman class. The, there's the Manzes, who are basically meant to be Manics. Um, Howard Straw is that representative. They are a meant to be very creative and very active. They've invented a lot of like weapons because of their um, kind of insane creativity, but they're also very disordered and very aggressive and violent, which makes them very unliked by all the other clans because they're kind of bully basically all the other um all the other people and they're very aggressive towards them there is the schizes which is obviously meant to refer to schizophrenia their representative is omar diamond and they're kind of a mystic class like they always have visions and uh, the in the, in this novel like these these different realities they live in these visions are uh we should say represented as being they're not so much they have a hallucinatory aspect but these realities are valid within the terms of the book which is a classic Philip K. Dick thing of reality being not that solid and kind of open to moving into different states so these visions have have a clear value in this um, world there are Hebes which I've looked up and found a short for hebephrenia which is apparently a, an old term for a form of schizophrenia that's no longer recognized they live in gandhi town and they are kind of uh lazy or at least disengaged and there's just like rubbish and junk everywhere they are kind of a manual labor class when they will do it and when they're not just kind of sitting around they also have some visionaries they're represented by Jacob Simon. There's another very important one called Ignatz Lederbar, who is a kind of referred to as a saint, who, uh, yeah, again, kind of have, has visions and so on. There are the polys, which is apparently short for polymorphic schizophrenia. They are very creative and they produce new ideas. It says that all children on the on the moon are born polys and that they go to a common central school until it's kind of clear which clan they should go into. So there's a suggestion in the book that um, these though these people have been diagnosed, uh, kind of categorised as poly, many of them may not actually be mentally ill at the outset, but that's just kind of because the society is organised in that way. People have to be categorised so that that's how they've kind of all been default 
default categorized. Um, there's the obcoms, who are obviously obsessive compulsive, who barely feature in the story. They are the bureaucrat class because of, yeah, pretty obvious why they've made that, why he's made that connection, this idea that bureaucrats are kind of obsessed with detail and organization, so that's what they do. There's the Depths, who are obviously people who suffer with depression, who are perhaps the most offensively portrayed class in this book. They are kind of uh, a source of a lot of disdain from all the other clans. They kind of find them very annoying. They're defined by kind of paralysis of mustering any will to do anything, which I suppose in, in some ways representative of, of kind of problems that people who suffer depression have to deal with but it, it's not representative it's represented in a very um unempathetic way i would say most of the time yeah as i say there's just kind of a lot of disdain for them so the the other part of this is uh, the protagonist chuck rittersdorf who is having marital problems he is going to be getting divorced from his wife mary who is a psychologist who's working at a marriage counselor at the beginning of the book but she wants to be the psychologist that's going to this planet this the, the, the government is is looking forward you know to send to the alphane moon and she basically wants i think it's like a kind of voluntary position or should be taking a pay cut at least whatever so she wants chuck to uh whose job is to create dialogue for cia simulacra or robots um he wants him to take a, a better paying job and she's basically going to force him to do so but anyway he uh gets the chance to control the simulacra that is going to be going with mary to the alpha moon and he decides to plot to use it to kill her so the first thing I want to focus in on with this book, I've talked a lot about, or at least I've mentioned pretty much every episode I've done on the Philip K. Dignall, I think, um, misogyny in his books. And I said it was something that I would focus in on at some point, and I think now is the time to do that with what I consider to be, as, as memory serves, and, and of the ones I've read, his most blatantly misogynistic novel. So I remember reading this the first time and thinking, like, who's the woman you hate so much here? There is, I mean, I think I probably had some awareness of the, of the fact that he had had multiple marriages, um, but it just comes out so strongly here that's, that he's getting at someone that it kind of, you, you can't help but notice it in a way that's very distracting. So as I as I mentioned, C is trying to get him to take a, a job that would, get more money and status he's arranged a meeting for him to get a job writing for a comedy show for this big like star called bunny hentman and it says basically so that she can take pride in his work um and they, this is where a lot of the arguments come from he has she's kind of angered at his uh lack of ambition his kind of inertia when he stayed in his job there's constant repetitions of her superiority, his clear feeling of, of uh, inferiority. She kind of diagnoses him, not to, to, uh, later in the book, when she's on the Alpha Moon, she says that he has a, a streak of hebephrenia in him, which I mentioned later. So as far as she's concerned, she's got this latent streak of mental illness. And yeah, she is pushing forward with this divorce. Um, she's trying to use it to force him to take another job and, um, which then and and to get for him to basically then to get the money from him to kind of fund what she wants to do. So she's already in their marriage portrayed as kind of very aggressively trying to force him to do something for money and status that to kind of meet her standards. And in this divorce, she's then forcing kind of take using using the divorce to take control of her life and get what she wants for for her own life there's this thing where they talk about how she's um sold a house or is selling the house and putting their daughter in boarding school these children don't appear in love at all uh, but they she's six years old and he says chuck that is says she's too young to be sent away from home and i've, I've mentioned before this trope of cold women and that's what we see here that's what he's clearly trying to represent with this woman obviously um, traditionally meant to be thought of as, as a maternal figure, sending away this poor child. Uh, you know, it's, it's her fault as far as he's concerned. And 
yeah, this is this is how a lot of women have represented in his his uh, books. This very icy, cold trope. She's very bitchy. She's very brutal. She comes to this shitty apartment that he's he's now living in, like terrible in like a really uh, rough area in a really bad apartment building, like falling apart. She rolls up in a fancy car and forces him to write a check for her for for I can't remember for what, but. And he's he's you know he's clearly like emasculated. He shrinks before her. You can, you can already see um, what I'm talking about. With he's he's portraying this this woman, um, her coldness, her her bitchiness, her um, controlling nature in such an aggressive way that it it um, really shines through as um, really kind of sticks out as something strange. And you 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 clearly think he's writing to get at someone here. Um, we also have this, there's this weird scene with a, a receptionist. Um, there's some talk about how like bras are out of fashion or whatever. So you can, you can see people's nipples. And he, when she comes in, the receptionist who's, uh, I believe has got like big tits, which in, in Philip K. Dick's mind is some kind of sign of, of virtue. I think if you've read any of his books before, he often focuses on women's breasts, like when he weighing up their physical appearance, but always really commonly focuses on on breasts and uh, Mary's of course are a lot smaller and um, they do get evaluated favorably by another character later in the book but anyway um, for Chuck they're smaller this other woman has bigger breasts and you can see her nipples so in Philip K Dick's mind obviously a much better person but her her nipples retract when um when Mary comes in, um, and she, well, I think it's when you said she meets her coldness. So again, literally, this this idea of the cold woman, she's literally come into a, a room of her coldness and made the the nipples of the, the nice big breasts of the other woman retract, which is in Philip's kind of dick mind is is kind of clear indication of, of how evil she is. Um, I think that that scene kind of very represents the very kind of strange approach she has to women and how he how he views them um yeah so mary literally says to him you'll never be free of me i'll always cost you something it will cost you more than you can afford to pay she's actively punishing him she's taking pleasure in his suffering and she's determined to make it worse to to punish him other people see this in her in some way bunny Hentman, who i mentioned this big comedy star he says that he talks about how cold chuck's wife is um ignatz lederbar who i mentioned this uh, saint or visionary it's a scene where he has a kind of vision of a monster coming to the planet and it's kind of huge threat it's very it's interesting this big like vicious aggressive violent monster and i think it's very clear that this is meant to be again mary this is who it's, it's meant to represent what we find out later as this a bit progresses is um it's suggested that she's repressed and she has some illness so there's a scene where a guy uh where bane's actually um, because of the once she's got to the alphane moon and and the the alphanes see these correctly identify this um psychological mission as a, th- a threat they're worried about the, the the power that earth has and and think that they're basically going to take over so they're, they're trying to come up with a plan to deal with that and the idea that baines decides on for some reason is that he's going to seduce her and the council agrees to this um he gets an aphrodisiac and um, which he basically uses to date rape her which has its um, own problems and opens up a whole other can of worms which I'll leave for now but she ends up in the scene kind of violently biting him uh, almost like eating him uh, in a way that makes him regret his decision he's trying to like get to an emergency burn and she's like holding him down grabbing his ankle and putting him back trying to you know like having sex with him while she's um like biting like he's you know bleeding everywhere so there's this repressed like primal libidinal energy that she she has um it, it kind of they, they determine in the book so it wasn't just this aphrodisiac that, that did this to her the aphrodisiac unleashed something in her he's left like he passes out uh 
and he wakes up after she's had sex and like dumped him out in the desert covered in blood and everything so this is, you can see again this is a very clear idea of this cold horrible woman who is kind of punishing chuck and she's like repressing like her sexual nature it's like something um yeah, it's kind of ill in her she, she she's uh that repression of, of the sexual energy but she's seen that scene with the breasts like her coldness kind of uh cutting down the 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 sexual aura of the receptionist there's this idea that something uh evil in her there like her not being sexual not being a, a, a again not being maternal not being sexual not being these things that um philip k dick i think wants a, a woman to be and yeah this idea that she's she's ill and repressed um, they did they well they basically they, they think because of her aggression and so forth that she's going to be a, a man's and the, the whole idea was that she thought she diagnosed chuck as, as sick and she's a psychologist and all this and, um chuck tries to commit suicide near the near the beginning of the book so he's you know he's the guy who's who's meant to be um, mentally ill in some way and they, they come to this kind of conclusion that actually it's you know maybe she's mentally ill they kind of come to this agreement where they persuade um her to take this test and it turns out that chuck chuck has to take it as well it turns out that chuck is completely fine and she is mentally ill and not only is she not is she not a man she is a, a dep or a depressive which um again problematic but in the, in the terms of the book i think that's very much portrayed as being like the worst thing you could be um and this this continual pressing of the issue of his income that's due to her depression the sense that uh something had to be done or we were doomed and that's why she she was acting like that towards chucks to like his suicidal thing his problems they're all down to her so there's this whole thing of you treated me as mentally ill and then this is this is what kind of comes across again this thing of this is something that's taking place outside of the novel um as well as in the novel this idea oh you know you having these arguments of you want me to do this you want me to do that really it's all your mental health problem and you're mentally ill and look Chuck's been found out, found out that he's completely fine, and she is really the ill one. Um, it's kind of very, you know, this moment of getting back to her. Not only that, she's she's a, a depth, which, as I say, within the book is is depicted really negatively. So she's kind of like the worst of the the mental uh, health problems that they have there. She's the worst one you can be, and she's um, kind of devastated by that diagnosis as well. So it's kind of again a kind of punishment. And at the end, you have the couple, after the, even though they uh, say Chuck planned to kill her and they both tried to kill each other at some point, but uh, there's a lot of plot in Philip K. Dick novels, I can't go into all of this. So anyway, the, the couple end up somewhat reunified. There's presented there's a possibility now of working working things out and having a new relationship. They decide to stay on the Alpha Moon. And we kind of, we end up with Mary previously this very um powerful um again as i say depicted negatively but nonetheless a very powerful forceful woman she's standing next to him with her head kind of tilted resting on on chuck's shoulder and she says um tell me it will be tell me it will be okay kind of desperately needing his validation and tamed and this is the whole trajectory of the, of this novel apart from the many detours, um, this this vicious portrayal of this woman. There's a vindictiveness to the way she's portrayed that overshadows the, the whole story. As I say, the whole thing is about you thought of me as the one that had problems, you cr- criticised me for um, you know, thinking about, you know, as I've mentioned before, Philip K. Dink lived in poverty, Chuck is somebody who's not earning very much money, there's no coincidence in that, I don't think, this whole, um, I've mentioned this as well, Dick's uneasiness about his status as a science fiction writer, um, his, uh, I mentioned it earlier in this episode, him thinking of himself as an artist, as someone with something of value to say philosophically, working this medium not respected not much money so you know all these issues that he has 
and these these insecurities about the status of the woman who's who's more successful than him the whole thing is about how all these problems can then be transported onto her actually you were the one that was mentally ill i was fine the whole time you pushed everything onto me you were the sick one and that's very clearly uh, as i say it's very clearly not just the story you don't need this context um, to know this you read the story and you can see that he's very clearly uh, this is a very spiteful portrayal of of this character and it's very clearly uh, an aggression towards a particular woman in his life and i think you can read it more generally as a kind of aggression towards women there's a nice quote which uh, i've taken from uh, a book by christopher palmer called philip k dick acceleration and terror of the postmodern and he says uh, talking about this book a novel about derangement becomes a deranged novel Mary's aggression towards Chuck is capped by the author's aggression towards Mary. So yeah, I think that quite nicely sums up um, what's happening in this book in terms of Mary and, and the misogyny there. I wanted to talk about some biographical details here as well. Um, I'm usually very resistant to reading kind of biographical readings of Dick because tends to happen a lot when people are talking about Dick, they keep referring, and his life is very interesting and lots of strange stories and, and weird things um, that happened in his life, which makes it tempting to do that. But I find that when that's done, it can become very messy and there's a, the, kind of the, the, the reading of his novels always becomes biography. Uh, and yeah, I don't, I don't always think it's particularly productive. I think I'd rather focus on the book themselves uh, most of the time but anyway it's so obvious in this book that it's kind of not difficult to do that and I thought might be might be worth doing it at this point so just on on this idea of him getting at some somebody uh on his as I mentioned he was married a few times but on the particular marriage that he's writing about here I'm taking this from wikipedia uh he was says he was physically abusive with his third wife, Anne Williams Rubenstein. After one argument in 1963, he attempted to push her off a cliff in a car, then later claimed she was trying to kill him and convinced the psychiatrist to commit her involuntarily. After filing for divorce in 1964, he moved to Oakland to live with a fan, Grania Davis. Shortly after, he attempted suicide by driving off the road while she was a passenger. So, yeah, Philip Dick, not always a very nice man. Um, this is uh, from an interview I found in the New York Times, or a quote from an interview in the New York Times with uh, the aforementioned wife, Anne Williams Rubenstein. Um, this is talking about a bit more detail and the thing of him trying to kill her. One day they were driving out of a field after putting lumber in the barn. Dick opened the gate, Mrs. Dick gunned the motor, and he ran off. I guess he thought I was trying to kill him, she said. So, yeah, the uh, paranoia. Um, that Dick is writing about in the novel. Yeah, he that was something that he was living with. And yeah, it's clear that this is the woman that he was writing about. Um, in, t in terms of his paranoia, I found a suggestion somewhere as well that he's in a biography that his uh, paranoia was at least part amphetamine fueled. Um, this is the other reason I mentioned the insane productivity of his novels earlier on. Uh, how he was able to do that amphetamine abuse basically he was taking amphetamines to write constantly yeah this this person suggested that he was suffering from uh amphetamine induced psychotic paranoia psychotic disorder um which was kind of enhancing his paranoia i don't know if that's true that seems reasonable what i was find what i find interesting about that's this um dick's kind of self-awareness clearly a very paranoid man but somebody who understands paranoia very well. Um, one of the characters in this book, I hope it's in this book, um, talks about paranoia's totalizing nature and how paranoia, the paranoid rather, is able to weave every new detail into their story. They're able to always make it work. And yeah, he's very good at representing paranoia and how it works. So he has a kind of awareness about his own problems which is very interesting um in this in that interview his wife said when he got her committed he did actually end up telling the doctors that he should be the one who be should be committed so yeah he had an awareness of that and this comes up in a very interesting way in, in valis in terms of 
to Philip K. Dick's is kind of uh, ability. He's, he's very clearly clear ability to be deluded, but very aware of his delusion at the same time. But that's for when we get to Valis. I'll deal with that in detail when we get there. Um, and on the uh, on the amphetamine abuse, while I'm uh, mentioning that uh, in the book, there's a character called Lord Running Clam, a uh, mind reading alien slime and he gives chuck a stimulant that allows him to work 24 hours a day so that he can keep his job at the cia and take the job writing for bunny henman so yeah again that's clearly a biological uh biographical sorry uh detail we can also see in this book i think that aforementioned anxiety about his status as a science fiction writer um, this would have been around the period not long before he wrote this where he tried writing realist novels instead of science fiction failed to sell them, gave up for a while helping his wife with her jewellery business which you might re- remember appearing in Man in High Castle this uh, like homemade jewellery business, that's where that comes from this is before, and then Man in High Castle was kind of the breakthrough which returned him to science fiction writing but he always had this anxiety about how science fiction was perceived as lack of financial success, which is why he tried the realist novels, why he gave it up. And Chuck in this book, he talks about how the programming that he concocted, the scripts he writes for the um, simulacra, the androids, is infantile, spurious and biased. He says the main appeal was to school children, both in the USA and the neighbouring communist states, and to the great mass of adults of low educational background. He was, in fact, a hack, and Mary had pointed this out many, many times. I think that is in some way about his science fiction writing, um, his kind of anxieties about that. There's a couple of other moments like that. Towards the end of the book, uh, Chuck suggests that he's more effective expressing himself through the lines he writes for other characters to speak for uh, the simulacra then he is speaking himself he writes basically ends up writing scripts for the writing lines for dan mageboom who's the simulacra that goes with mary to the alpha moon to try and um convince the out the uh the clans people on the moon in the in the book's conclusion to ask the Alphanes for protection to give them the legal authority they need to come into the moon and stop this plot from earth to to take it back over but anyway he yeah this idea that he's more effective expressing himself through the things he writes through the things he creates i think again that's you know what how dick feels about himself there's also a bit where um, so Bunny Hemman, after he takes this job as a as a writer for Bunny Hemman, he has an idea about a CIA agent posing as a um, marriage counsellor. Chuck twists that to be about a simulacra that is a marriage counsellor. Um, these are obviously... Uh, Chuck's wife is a marriage counsellor. Um, there's a simulacra going with her. They end up, the story... Kind of, it becomes very uncomfortable for him because he's got this plot about killing her. They end up kind of working around the story. The, the people he's working with, in a way that makes him very uncomfortable, end up working the story to be a, or to be about a plot to try and kill the other person, which Chuck becomes very uncomfortable about. But yeah, so his plot, his story is being um, created in a piece of fiction within the novel. The the, the story that they're writing for Bunny Hempman. That's kind of a meta thing, again, I think, about Dick putting his marital problems into this work. Um, yeah, I thought that context might be helpful a bit in, the, in this story where there's a vendetta, so clearly poking through. And yeah, just to say that, I think, in these future dystopias that Philip K. Dick, K. Dick writes about where so much have changed, um, said this, I think, in the Snatcher episode, but you obviously have... your often have in futures things changing a lot but gender relations uh often not so much and philip k dick's view of the position of women um and the position that they should be in is very uh this is not this is very conservative uh this is not changed in the in the future in any way he's a very traditional unhealthy conception of women and the way they behave and their motivations and so on so yes moving on from that the other big thing in this book, again, we are returned to this theme of mental health and the anti-psychiatry utopia. Uh, I explained the idea of anti-psychiatry before in the episode of Martian Time Slip, so 
was it the Martian Timeship one or the uh, Simulacra one? The Martian Timeship one, I think. But yeah, I won't go in, I won't go into detail on that again because I've done that, so you can just go back to that episode if you're if you're interested. But yeah, needed to say basically just just to quickly sum up anti-psychiatry, an idea which has some merit but also some problems. Basically, the idea of um, psychiatry being a form of uh, power that's exercised to repress people, and that. Uh, sometimes depending on how extreme the proponent might be the idea that psychiatric problems in a way don't exist or any problems insofar as they're not allowed by the society um as i say this has some relevance to it in the way that if you think about how uh, the history of psychiatry and women being diagnosed as hysterics is a very clear example of the kind of thing anti-psychiatry would point to but yeah the idea that yeah and, and, and also value an idea that society or a system can produce or make uh, mental health problems worse certainly something i agree with but the idea that they don't exist uh, i think problematic but yeah so yeah anyway this is a anti-psychiatry utopia this moon these are people who formed a functional society and it's a utopia for them because they are now they, the mental health hospitals the mental hospitals to them was uh, a torture this is something they fear um, that becomes clear when they see earth coming in and, and see the prospect of that returning it's, it's a sight of horror for them and they've overthrown it to create a utopian society that allows them to live and function with their problems or however you want to frame it in a way that they are happy with and that works for them and this anti-psychiatry thing is represented from the other side in the the mission that Mary's on, being fundamentally an imperialist, imperialist claim. So they assume that this again they've been out of contact with the society. They assume the society is dysfunctional. They don't know because because there's been no contact, and they want to treat them. Is what they say. It's kind of a, a paternalistic imperialist claim. A, a reporter asked them when they're sort of make public the the, the mission that going to go on um has it occurred to tear plan that's like the government authority to just leave this moon alone to treat its culture as you would any other culture respecting its values and customs and clearly they haven't so when they're when they're discussing this society and the, and they they talk about the kind of social functions that each clan solves. One of them says, like, oh, okay, so the mains are kind of like the samurai. So there's an acknowledgement from them in some way as well that this society functions. In that, like these these clans have societal functions in the way that certain groups did have or continue to do on earth. Yeah, even though this society functions, Mary, Mary's kind of job or the way she wants to frame it is... is kind of fundamentally broken and dystopic society she says it's a different uh, society that is founded on hate and that people will be gradually cut off from each other they are cut off from external stimuli and they she kind of says that this will produce hallucination uh or kind of a yeah the, almost the production of an alternate reality is the way when she's talks, talking about hallucination she's talking about almost the production of a completely separate reality and she says that they will already be hallucinating to some degree um she says they will actually perceive our ship as as threatening not not that they will not that they might think that ship was threatening they will actually perceive it as threatening um, she says they will see it as an invading spearhead to overthrow the society. And the, <laughs> the other character, uh, the simulacra, who's kind of under his own control at that time. These simulacra can be controlled by a person, but they also function like, by themselves when it was there. Anyway, after she says this, um, they're going to perceive our ship as threatening. They will see it as an invading spearhead to overthrow the society. He says, but that's true. <laughs> um, she's kind of like, well, uh, yeah, but um, they're... They're in a position they hold by accident, and through therapy, I will get them to govern themselves. Govern themselves, but now they won't be governing themselves because of an accidental thing. They'll kind of be healthy to do it. So yeah, there's this whole again the anti-psychiatry thing is very clear there. There's this idea that power is making an imperious claim on them and is using their psychiatric um, problems or their their diagnosis as a way to uh, justify what they want to do and. Yeah, this thing of uh, 
that the the idea that they perceive them as threatening is evidence for them that what they say is right, even though their ship is threatening, as the as the simulacra points out, it's true that their ship is threatening. It's true that they're in uh, a spearhead of an invasion. But this categorization allows them to that that uh, stating that fact, acknowledging that fact, is evidence for them that uh, they are ill and they need their help. So. Yeah, in a sense, even they're more perceptive than Mary, who's kind of bought into the uh, fake of the the stated goal of the mission of what she thinks she's been sent there for. They um, their paranoia is more real in terms of their perception of what they are there to do than than her own perception. And um, I think this is a, a vision of Utopia in in some way. Um, they talk about the importance of the bonds between the clans and Bane says the bonds were life-giving and to all of them but there's also yeah something interesting these these relationships that the clans have they're kind of relationships of both of conflict and of mutual responsibility they certainly are dysfunctional in many ways there's a lot of hostility between the clans um, there's a lot of distrust and a lot of antagonism in the relationships they have. But nevertheless, they managed to find a way through that. This is also prefigured in some way in uh, Chuck's flat that I mentioned earlier. It's a very run-down flat in a, a very dirty living conditions in a very run-down building in a very rough community. But that this place is also a place uh, full of outcasts, people who are not part of the system, who are not part of power, the system of power. And there's also a suggestion of a utopian aspect there in these people finding a bond of each other and supporting each other. Um, this kind of, uh, in a way that, that the power does not have. So uh, obviously, uh, collectivity is always the... The weapon that people who are not part of the power structure have against power. But um, so Chuck lives in this awful shitty flat, and he um, he's in this very his position where he's very down because of his divorce. He stopped from committing suicide by because of the uh, previously mentioned alien slime who reads his thought that he's, that he's about to commit suicide and sends a woman that previously mentioned Joan Trist, Joan Trist Day or whatever with the psychic powers in to stop him committing suicide. And she says to him, um, I'll help you decorate. Lord Running Clam will too. Lord Running Clam is the psychic mould. Um, there's a molten metal life form from Jupiter hibernating, but when he comes back to life, he'll want to chip in. He'll want to pitch in, sorry. Um, there's a, she says, uh, there's a whiz bird from Mars next door. He has no hands, but he can move objects by psychokinesis. Um, so yeah, there's this little community of outcasts. The novel explains that there's a, a ghetto situation here from people who are non-Terran. Um, it doesn't matter what their status is in the home worlds because they are um, non-Terran. They are kind of a, treated as a subclass, so they're forced to inhabit um, substandard housing like this. So Lord Running Clan, for example, is very, uh, I think he's very wealthy and he's, yeah, wealthy merchant, but, but because he's non-Terran, he's subject to that prejudice and he has to live in this um, shitty housing. So there's this community of, of outcasts who come together to support each other in a very bad situation. And there's something, so I think Dick's finding value there in a kind of shared suffering or identifying something in a power of community that is only available to outcasts which we can read more gem as i say if we're talking about power we can broaden that out and think about outcasts as being you can think of that in terms of like the 99 percent or whatever whatever i think that works i think he's finding some utopian value there and suggesting that we are able to have a bond that is is powerful that cannot exist um for those who are not cast out from power in some way that's only available to us and yeah i think there's something valuable there again i'll just say going back to mentioning about the um the psychic powers being incorporated into capital this idea of amazing sci-fi stuff being overwhelmed by like the mundane and um kind of um, exploitation 
you've got all these alien creatures with special powers and all amazing um, different qualities from all different worlds. But then they're living in this, um, they're just basically living in poor condition in this shitty flat because it's like none of that is deemed like inherently valuable because they're in a system of capital. Despite what um, our capitalists would tell you, capitalism is of course not uh, neutral to those who kind of work hard for their money or whatever. And these non-Terran people in this case are the, the victims of that. So they are just... Uh, yeah, the, the mundane, the idea of exploitation just overwhelms all these kind of amazing sci-fi qualities and becomes something very dull and uh, depressing in some ways. So I think that's, yeah, useful for thinking about um, how a totalizing, the kind of effects that a totalizing system like capitalism can have. Um I focused a lot on the uh, clans on the moon the other aspect to this is the way that the authorities are contrasted with them so um paranoia as always is a big part of this there's a lot of paranoia going on between the the, the authorities there's a lot of almost comedic stuff when chuck is embroiled between the cia and what's referred to as the bunny hentman organization so this comedian we find out it's more than a comedian who has connections to the Alphanes going back to before the war. These two groups coming up always with like bizarre theories and trying to manipulate Chuck. And there's this whole thing going on about, you know, they know that we know, but we know that they know we know. And they're coming up with all these different speculations on what they're doing. And it's always the kind of Chuck's position of where he thinks he is and who's supporting him and why or why they're against him is always changing and shifting in this immensely complicated complicated plot, which is, uh, I think, again, meant to be a reflection of paranoia and how it functions. Um, in fact, I think it's very clear. So Lord Running Clam, for example says while Chuck is talking to him about what's going on and you know these theories and conspiracies effectively he says your CIA people's theory strikes me as a miserable bundle of random suspicions a few separate facts strung together by an intricate structure of ad hoc theorizing in which everyone is credited with enormous powers for intrigue again this is what the paranoid does that's how paranoids function as we mentioned the paranoid can incorporate any new detail uh, into the into their story. Everything can become evidence for the thing that they believe, and this is what these organisations are able to do. This is what the novel suggests, and I think is uh, correct in some way. How power functions, how nations functions. Uh, I, again, I think I mentioned this in the Strider episode, but the. I can't remember where I saw this, but there was, I remember reading some, or seeing reference to some study where they looked at um, like reports from the Cold War from the CIA and the Soviets. And they saw that both sides massively overestimated the capabilities of, of the other. I think this happens all the time. Again, so this is a paranoid uh, system of thought. They, they think that these people have their they always think the enemy has the hands and anything if something happens to have that they must be doing that they're controlling them because they want this to happen and yeah so that everything becomes connected uh, to them and their enemy and you can see that how for example russia has been become imbued with a great deal of, of power now if you listen to certain people the only reason that Brexit happened is because of Russia. The only reason that Trump won is because of Russia. School shootings are Russia's fault, etc., etc., etc. So yes, the the idea here is that um, authority uh, power is inherently paranoid, is inherently mentally ill, and, and that's the contrast that's going on here. These people who are who are trying to. Uh, help in inverted commas and take over the Alphanes, they are just as delusional, if not more so, than, than them. I think I, I may have quoted this in the Martian Time Slip episode, but whether I did or not, I'm gonna do it again here because it's very relevant. Again, this is from that book, Exhilaration Terror of the Postmodern, when so Christopher Palmer he's talking about 
Martian time slip and this novel, he says, both suggest that the socially powerful are more dangerous since prevailing ideology both encourages their destructive behaviour and binds them to their own condition than those who are labelled insane and rendered powerless. Both parties live by fantasy. Social, social reality is not readily available as a norm. So yeah, um, again, you can read that as an anti-psychiatry thing, but also just in general, I think it works. The idea that power is inherently dangerous. Um, these people who are subjected to categorization or treatment or authority, they're not really a threat um, because they don't have power. It's power that makes people dangerous. And also these people, power is inherently paranoid. Power, power is inherently uh, destructive and ill. And yeah, as the quote suggests, because they have power, because they have hegemony, it's able to uh, reinforce itself and reinforce the destructive behaviour. And that's a good way, I think, of... Um, I mean, you th think about... Again, think, the, the things I mentioned, um, paranoia of, of Russia and how that reinforces itself, how everything becomes more evidence that... Um, that rushes behind it all. We think about how capitalism is leading us towards environmental catastrophe. This is clearly, it's clearly leading us there. It's clearly a destructive force. We're clearly, in some sense, uh, you can say we're clearly mentally ill for just blindly, for just walking towards that and allowing this to happen. But because this is hegemonic, because because it's the prevailing ideology, it's able to keep reinforcing itself and carry on that behaviour. And yeah, I like the way that this moves the view of what dystopia is away from being about, say, in this case, like mental illness or the, the problems of individuals, I suppose you could say, to being a fundamental problem of inequality systems and power that is uh the dystopia that and that i think is um effective and an important way of thinking about power and ideology the final thing i want to talk about is again subject i've mentioned before perhaps we can move on to it when we move out of this uh, kind of thematic trilogy, but perhaps not, I don't know, it appears quite often in Dick, I think, is the subject of empathy, which again is being represented as being very important here, and for Dick is kind of um, a vital thing. So in this book, I think it's Mary who says this, but she says, paranoid suffers from the greatest mental disfigurement possible for a human being. He was incapable of empathy. And you may say, uh, obviously, Mary's not a sympathetic character in this, but I think that's meant to be presented. I think Dick agrees with that statement. The being incapable of empathy is is the, the worst thing for a human being. Again, I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but it's hard not to where things keep recycling in Dick for me to not uh, recycle as well. But he, he's written an essay called uh, The Android and the Human or something like that. He talks about how, for him, the android or the not human is being defined by not having empathy. So this is central for him. This is humanity, empathy. And in this book, we have these rare moments of, of empathy. And that is perhaps vital for that bond that Baines talked about, suggested in the, the community, the life-giving bonds of, of the clans. Uh, these random uh, empathetic acts are the thing that holds them together in spite of their kind of dysfunctionality and all the conflict. So it's a moment where a man's this very aggressive uh, uh, clan, uh, one of them saves Baines from death. Uh, there's a moment where Baines, this pa paranoid who ostensibly incapable of empathy, shows some development and is, I think, meant to be becoming human in showing empathy. He saves uh, a love interest of his whose name I've forgotten I think we do see him hints of him developing or showing empathy for other characters uh, in moments as well sorry if this sounds a bit disjointed but uh, I've got a cough at the moment so I'm going to be having to be cutting out these coughs uh, for your benefit so uh, if it sounds a bit weird that a bit disjointed here because I keep coughing and then cutting out anyway in 
uh, another quote from same book, Christopher Farmer's book. Um, he says, in clans, Dick finds moments of mutual assistance and kindness in the midst of prevailing aggression and conspiracy, which expresses his sense of the psychopathology of the powerful. So again, these moments of assistance, these moments of empathy come in opposition to... Uh, yeah, this isn't something that comes from the powerful. This, this only comes from people who are under threat from power. So there's aforementioned examples, um, Lord Running Clam sacrificing himself to save um, Chuck, um, Chuck later managing to resurrect Lord Running Clam, Joan, uh, whatever her surname is, saving um, Chuck. In terms of coming coming towards the end now and just trying to think about what it is that Dick is doing with empathy. Um, I'm going to read quite a long extract now from Palmer's book, but I think it's very useful and very uh, for thinking about empathy and what Dick is doing with it. So we're starting off, he's talking about um, Philip K. Dick in novels in general at this point, not, not this specific book, but he says... Dick does retain the strong desire to invent incidents expressing what Stephen has called intramundane transcendence. These incidents are expressions of an ethical hope that glimpses a way out of the prison of simulacra. The remainder of this chapter discusses a number of incidents of this kind. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, don't worry, so we won't, we won't see those. Um, showing that they are commonly set outside the system, both narratively and in terms of the society of the given book, and that this gives rise to problems and thence further formal resources in Dick Slater novels. So... Uh, skipping forward a bit, um, he says, First, some further comments on the contents of Dick's imagined worlds. It is commonly maintained that any given invention or gizmo in science fiction should be subjected to sober socio-political extrapolation, explanation and testing. One cannot simply, fancifully, introduce robot psychiatrists or men with three penises into one's novum without thinking through the technical, sociological and social ramifications at least send the member of three penises along to consult the robot psychiatrists. These considerations may make light of the free player fantasy in science fiction, as my facetiousness acknowledges, but what is clear is that Philip K. Dick commonly flouts them. His inventions and gizmos are offered frivolously or casually. I mentioned that earlier with the psychic powers and, and so on. What might be the significance of this? It may be that the process of extrapolation and explanation would itself tie the fiction to a rational cause and effect narrative coherence. Form has ideological implications. This rationalized or rationalizable narrative is not neutral and is associated with a calculating competitive rationality that is critiqued in Dick's novels and is also seen as lacking grounds since the grounds of real and unreal subject and object are so uncertain in his novels. Narrative coherence is hard to find an explanation of what has happened is rendered impossible or contradictory. The plot is very often about the search for an explanation, a search which is repeatedly thwarted. Alongside this flux, rather than rising out of it, there tends to occur a certain kind of incidence that expresses ethical hope and the value of empathy or solidarity. If we see the whimsically offered future gizmo and the impulsively arising gesture as analogous because both freewheeling and justified and unconnected, then the impulsive arriving gesture can be read as providing Dick with a way out of the problems and narrative which he has set himself by his rejection of sober extrapolation and his departure from linear narrative. So I think there's some other things going on in that in that uh, section that uh, would require more time and discussion I've got here but just to say that I think there's something interesting there about how empathy is used this idea of it kind of emerging outside of the plot and yes perhaps a, a utopian value in that perhaps a kind of limited perspective but in totalizing systems and totalizing systems like capital which I think Dick suggests these systems or, or well, he definitely does suggest that these systems create a reality in in some sense. They they're more it's more than their system. Their whole way of thinking, the, the way that they make you think, the the thing that you're 
the place that you're made to live in is a reality that is created by that ideology, by that system. Any resistance to that has to come from outside as a kind of aberration. So, yeah, and if you think about the idea of reforming a system from the inside, or I will work for the police, but I will be a good police officer and I will change from the inside, you know, this kind of thing, which uh, more often than not uh, doesn't work. Instead, the change normally has to come from outside. If you think of, I don't know, the civil rights movement, um, black people were not granted their rights by nice white people who were reforming the system from the inside. They were one from the outside. And so, yeah, this idea of solidarity or empathy as a utopian value that can emerge from as an aberration from outside that can come out of nowhere as political change can also seem to. Um, yeah, I think there's utopian value in that. Yeah, I think there's something useful, If even if I, I haven't perhaps entirely uh, coherently formed what I think about it in my head. But yeah, this idea of resistance, solidarity as an aberration from outside the system and how that's kind of necessarily the character of an effective opposition to a totalizing system. So yeah, I'll end that here. Uh, again, as with the last Philip K. Dick one I did on the Simulacra, I'm not sure this is one of Dick's best novels. But yeah, we'll be getting back on to some good ones soon, definitely. Uh, as I say, next one will be either Dr. Blood Money or The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, which is one of his most difficult and strange and um, interesting books. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. Um, if so, please consider checking out the Patreon at patreon.com slash utopianhorizons where you can support me to help keep doing this and get access to lots more bonus episodes. I will be doing another one probably this week or next week. So yeah, that'll be coming. You can get in touch with me at utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments or anything. And yeah, I'm on Twitter at Utopian Horizons. Please review the podcast if you uh, could. That would help as well. I've been talking for way too long. It's time for me to go to bed. Thank you for listening and I'll be back soon with more episodes. Bye-bye.